Hey guys, welcome to the Tales of Moxie podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Lee, and I'm so glad that you're here. I created this podcast with the simple desire of wanting women to have a place to share their stories. Our stories are so powerful, and God's fingerprints are evident throughout them all. So each week, I sit down with another woman who is brave enough to share her story with us. We talk all the things with no judgment. While each story is unique to the person telling it, I find that I see myself in all of them, and I'm sure that you will too. Welcome to another episode of Tales of Moxie. This week, I got to sit down with author Michelle DeRussia. Her latest book is called True You, and it talks about her personal journey with letting God prune her open and be the only one who defines her identity. We talked about her journey with discovering her gospel identity. We talked about rest. We talked about pruning open. We talked about being beloved. We talked about so many things. I loved Michelle, and if you guys want to find her book or reach out to her or anything like that, visit her at www.michelleDeRussia. In the meantime, enjoy our conversation. All right. Well, hi, Michelle. Welcome to Tales of Moxie. I am so excited to get to have you on. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I read your latest book, True You, that came out January 1st, right? It was the beginning yeah. of this year. What a way to start the year. That must have been- I know. <laughs> yeah, right? January 1st. I know. It's, it was a little crazy to release a book on an actual holiday, but it was all good. Yeah, no, and I have I have seen it. It was actually in um, our local Christian store and our Barnes and Noble. So I was very excited and I'm stoked to have this conversation with you. And if you don't mind, um, just kind of starting us off on telling us a little bit of your story on what led you to write this book. I would be curious to hear where you were at when we started this journey. Yeah, it, it was actually had kind of a long gestation. Um, you know, looking back in my journals, I realized that this idea was percolating for probably years, actually. Um, but I can pinpoint uh, the time that I sort of realized that I had a viable idea for a book. And it was on this trip that I took with my family to Oregon. Um, it was a few years ago. And we visited the Portland Japanese Garden. And our tour guide there explained to us this uh, gardening, Japanese gardening technique actually called pruning open. And I was struck by what a powerful metaphor it was, it was not only for gardening, but also for our spiritual lives and for our journeys of transformation. And that planted the seed, so to speak, for this book. And that metaphor of pruning and pruning open is kind of woven throughout the whole book. So that was the starting point. Mm, so can you tell us a little bit, um, I definitely wanna hear more about the pruning open, but I, I'm kind of curious if before we hit that, can we? Can you tell us a little bit more of like what, who is this book for? What is this, what is like that message of this is for you in this way? This book is really for those of us, and I think really this kind of, encompasses most of us, those of us who are really bent on accomplishing uh, our to-do lists and striving towards goals and focused on 
producing and efficiency and uh, even success and achievement, all the things that our culture and our society tells us um, are valuable and make us worthwhile, which is actually a false message. Um, and so it really is a book that encourages us to step out, step off of that treadmill of busyness and uh, striving and hustling and accomplishing and to turn inward a little bit and to get quiet and to find stillness and some solitude in our lives and to begin to look beneath all of that busyness and all of that striving and find the person that we are at the center of ourselves, the person that God created us to be. Um, because truthfully, that person often gets lost in the noise and in the messages that we hear um, in our culture and, and conveyed in our society. Mm. I love that. And that's so true because in our society right now, busyness is like a badge of honor. Like that's, that's the way that we esteem ourselves. Like you said, that's our worth in our society. And yeah. it's so opposite of what our worth is in the gospel. Um, but you're right. It's easy to forget that. In the book, you talk about you, you kind of forced yourself, made a decision to sit in silence for five minutes every day. Um, first of all, it's so interesting to me that five minutes of silence is so hard to come by. But when I read that, I, it, my first thought was, oh, it's only five minutes. And then I thought, I don't think I have five minutes of silence at all. I don't think I could come up with that. So what kind of led you to be like, no, I need to intentionally take out those five minutes of silence and, and stop the busyness for just five minutes. And what did you learn from that period? Yeah, it was really interesting. So honestly, it started more as a whim. Um, I have a dog who I walk every day, every afternoon, and it was on one of those afternoon walks, uh, we passed by this park bench that we pass every day, and I decided sort of on a whim in the moment that I was going to sit down for five minutes on that bench without, without picking up my phone, without you know doing all the things that we typically do when we have even a few seconds of free time, which for me and for a lot of us is scrolling Instagram, scrolling Facebook, you know, texting my mom, calling my sister, whatever. And I thought, I'm just going to put my phone down for five minutes and just sit in this little natural spot on the side of the path in silence and by myself. And it was so illuminating how hard it was to sit for five minutes that first day. I picked up my phone twice to look at the time. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, after two minutes, seriously, like who cannot sit for two minutes? Me, I cannot sit for two minutes. And then again, after four, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, how is this five minutes so long, right? Yeah. And I mean, it was such a red flag to me because I realized you literally cannot sit without distraction, without filling your, you know, your mind and your, your moment with some sort of busyness. And it was a red flag. I just realized that that's just not healthy, bottom line, right? It's just not healthy for my body, for my mind, for my spirit. And so I vowed in that moment, I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to stop at this bench. I'm going to put my phone down. I'm going to sit in silence. And, and I did it almost, I missed a couple days, but I did it almost every day for a year. Mm. And it was such an interesting experiment because 
I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I honestly didn't really have an expectations. I just thought clearly I need to do this. Um, but what happened was what was underneath the surface of that busyness and distraction was the deeper part of myself and really the Holy Spirit, right? In, inside me, speaking to me in a voice that I, I was never able to hear or discern because there was so much noise in my life. And so I think God began to reveal things about myself that helped me realize um, all of the sort of just the masks and the and the baggage and the false selves that I had crafted, this false identity that I had crafted for myself over years and years and years. And very slowly he began to strip that away. And that's, you know, that comes back to the metaphor of pruning, you know, just pruning all of that extraneous stuff away and opening me up to him and to who I was and who he created me to be. So yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think five minutes, right? <laughs> you wouldn't think that all of that could happen in five minutes. But over time, that is what began to happen. Um, and it's just, it was just a product of never being with myself, never being with my truest, deepest self in, in silence and solitude. And that was, that was a missing definitely a missing element in my life. Mm. Uh, and I love that because like we've said, we don't do that at all. And, and for most of us, like you say, with the striving, we strive and we strive and we strive and we scroll through things that we think, oh, well, we need to be like that. And we get that in our mind because we're not taking that time to sit out and discover who did you create me to be? Because we're not sitting in that, that silence. Or like you said, discerning. I love how I feel like a lot of times I talk to women and they say, well, I pray and I just, I don't feel like I know what he wanted me to do in that. I don't know. He didn't give me an answer. And I'm thinking for me, a lot of times I pray and it almost comes like a voicemail, like, okay, God, I'm going to leave you a voicemail. And then when you call back, I'm not going to have the time to answer. I'm not creating that space in my life to actually hear you. So I love that mm -hmm. this is almost, when you think about it, it's almost like, okay, God, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have a phone call with you and I'm going to listen. You talk and I'll listen. And, and how that, that silence plays out. And, you know, since we're so busy and we don't create that time, we don't let him speak our worth to us. And that mm -hmm. for me, when I was, when I was reading that in your story, I was thinking that's almost the beauty of that time is that I'm going to sit here and I'm going to let you speak truths over me in silence. I don't need to say anything. I need to just show up and be present. And that's beautiful. So as you moved into the pruning open, can you elaborate maybe on a little bit more of that metaphor for us now and what that looked like for your life? Yeah. So first, I just want to emphasize that none of the sort of revelations that I experienced happened right away. It was very much a slow process. Um, over really weeks and months. And there were times that I sat for my five or 10 minutes and nothing happened. You know, I, I really didn't feel any connection with God. I didn't really hear any still small voice. And, you know, I just want to emphasize that that is okay and that is normal and that is part of the process. It takes patience um, and stillness over, I think, a longer period of time than just, you know, one day, five minutes. Mm. Um, 
So over time, I think what began, what I began to see and realize about myself is that I had used busyness, achievement, productivity, efficiency as sort of a, a camouflage. Um, I used the metaphor of the tree particularly the oak tree, because what I noticed sitting all those five minute, all those five minute increments on the park bench is that the oak trees hold on to their leaves well into well past fall and well into winter. Mm-hmm. So I live in Nebraska, so we have all four seasons. And I sat on that park bench all through even on the winter days. And even in January and into February, the oak trees still had all their leaves on their branches. And it became a metaphor for me, like what am I clutching? What am I holding on to so tightly that I refuse to release, I refuse to let go? And it was this false identity that I had created for myself um, as somebody who needs to succeed, needs to achieve, needs to produce, needs to be doing all the time. Um, And so slowly as I observed that oak tree clinging so so, um, tenaciously to its leaves and, and thought back to, in contrast, the Japanese maple tree, which had been pruned open to this, this spaciousness and this um, this openness where the sort of essential essence of the tree was revealed in its trunk and its uh, branches and the sparseness of its leaves. And there was such a contrast between those two trees, one which was living so openly and, um, and the other which was had all of this camouflage that it was clinging to so tightly. And so that just became a metaphor that I, that I carried with me and realized that, you know, God was, was wanting me to, and, and guiding me toward releasing some of those um, elements that I clung to so tenaciously in order to open myself up to him and to the true person that he had created me to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that neat? Because in the gospel, right, when the disciples are called, it's follow me and they drop everything and they follow. They're not holding on to anything. So I feel like I wake up daily and I have the opportunity to follow, but I clutch on to so much. And I tell God, like, you can have everything. Oh, wait, but not that, because that makes me feel safe. That's the thing that for some reason I have decided I am me with that thing, you know, and, and it can be anything. A lot of times it's even, for me in my stage of life, it's even motherhood. You know, I can't give you that. I can't give you that today because I, I have to be a perfect mother. And I, it looks like this. It looks like the Pinterest style of motherhood when he's saying, well, that's not my story. And it's not even my story for you because each one of our stories looks so drastically different. So that might work for her. And that might be what I've called her to do, but it's not what I've called you to do. And I, I like hearing that kind of stage of like, you're right, we clutch on to things just like the oak tree, which is so beautiful. And we're just so deathly afraid of who will we be if we give this up? We don't know. So once you kind of started to let that go, who did you find that you were? Well, I think you hit on something really important, which is, which is the fear. So I think 
a lot of times, like you said, the reason we are clutching so tenaciously to all of these different things, and it's different for all of us, uh, is because we are afraid of who will be revealed without all of that scaffolding and camouflage and all of the things that we are carrying around, sort of afraid. We don't know what's underneath. Um, and sometimes we even, we even clutch and grasp uh, at those, those other things because we are, it's like self-protecting, you know, we're protecting ourselves from maybe some kind of wounds or inner hurts or grief that we're carrying. We, we may have been carrying it for a long time, you know, from, from our childhood or from our formative years. So what happens is it sort of gets harder before it gets easier. As you begin the pruning process, uh, the stripping away, you, you really step into a vulnerable, kind of raw, exposed place. You are like a tree that has been pruned. And a tree that has been pruned, I mean, it literally has raw, exposed places. There are wounds that are now open, right, to the air and to the elements in the same is true for us. We begin to uncover what I call and what some, you know, theologians, this is not a unique term to me, but call our false selves. Mm -hmm. So the parts of ourselves that, that God did not create, you know, the, the wounds, the baggage, the, the sin, the, the grief, all of that. And it, it's hard to come face to face with that. Um, and so I write a chapter in the book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And that is kind of when we are coming face to face with with uh, with this baggage and 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 what's you know what's underneath it, what's underneath our our leaves and our branches that we've pruned away. And it can be it can be hard because you are vulnerable and exposed. Yeah, but and it's it's part of the process. It's part of the journey. It's part of the transformation. Right, the rebirth, yeah. death and rebirth. Death comes before rebirth. It's the whole, it's really the resurrection story um, kind of being played out in each one of us. It is. And it's neat because especially coming from like the background that you're saying of, well, you were striving and needing to achieve more. I always love the fact, someone told me one time that um, for the people that were there at Jesus's death on the cross, that probably felt like the greatest failure in history. Um, like mm -hmm. we know looking back that it was the greatest success of mm -hmm. all time, but they wouldn't have known that at that time, right? The people that believe, mm -hmm. even that followed him all the way to the cross thinking, you know, well, that's it. It's over. And so it, mm -hmm. to me, that's kind of refreshing and encouraging that like you're saying, when I am pruned open and when I am raw and vulnerable, and when I feel like this is, this is all going wrong, everything's failing. I started this process hoping to change my life in some way, right? And I, and especially coming from achievement background, so I need to see it happen. I need to see mm -hmm. that transformation come. And if it doesn't come, then I'm doing something wrong. It's encouraging mm -hmm. to know that, no, maybe what we think looks like failure, God's, that's God's version of success. So when we're sitting in that and we're sitting in that vulnerable spot, and like you said, it's open wounds, so it's painful, it stings, it's bitter. 
Mm-hmm. There, there's success even in that because those are the moments when I'm hearing you talk of hearing like, no, I'm giving control up finally. And that mm-hmm. is success. But our culture has so twisted the version of success, right? That we don't look at that as successful. So it's neat to hear you talk mm-hmm. and hear you say like, no, I, I had to give it all up. I had to give control over, but it hurt. It was mm-hmm. really painful. Um, mm-hmm. So th- that's just, I, I think that's encouraging for us to remember. Yeah. And I, I love Gosh, I love your point about the people who stood at the foot of the cross because to them, right, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends or really how the story begins, but they didn't have that. So to them, it looked like, um, it looked like utter failure. It looked like everything had gone wrong. Um, And so, yeah, you, I think when you are going through the pruning and stripping away and you know the mystics called it purgation um just that it's purging Mm. of um these extraneous parts of yourself that that god's not create for you or in you but that you have somehow taken on through years through society's messages um as self-protection all of that um and you know In the pruning process, what I found really interesting and comforting is that after a tree is pruned, it usually a tree is pruned in either like late fall, sometimes depending on where you live, even in the winter or very early spring. And the reason for that is so that the tree can rest and has time to heal and recover. And so I think it's important to sort of give yourself um, to just be gentle with yourself when you're when you're walking through this this hard pro- part of the process. You know, allow yourself to rest, allow yourself to heal, allow yourself to just kind of sink into um, quiet and and comfort and and just letting God do his work in you, which is what is happening in a tree when it's recovering from its pruning. It's just allowing um, nature and outside forces and inner forces to heal the wounds in order for it to grow stronger and flourish and to be healthier. Because that's the purpose of pruning a tree Mm -hmm. and allowing God to prune us. Really the ultimate goal and the end is that it makes you stronger, healthier, able to grow in new ways that you were not able to grow in before because you were carrying all this extra, all these extra branches and leaves, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and like we've said in our society, rest is not, it's not praised or, or kind of worthy. It's, it's a very, when we have to rest, it's something that actually makes us feel like a failure. Um, It's interesting because I was just just this last week, I felt like my body was done and there was no reason for mm-hmm. it. I didn't have a cold. I didn't, there was nothing. I just, I told my husband, I said, I am so exhausted. And I went to bed that night. And as I was journaling, I was praying like, God, you know, help me just suck it up tomorrow. And I felt like he very, very quickly was like, no, how about you just listen? There's a reason for this. And maybe when our bodies are tired and our bodies are to that point of exhaustion, it's like, he's saying, I can't reach you any other way you know, you need to slow down. So I'm going to make your body give you a sign. That's how it felt to me. Like I'm giving you a sign. I'm screaming at you. Your soul needs to breathe. You need to slow down. So in like you've talked about in your book, being intentional, intentional, intentional about rest. 
um, and carving that out and, and knowing that like, that's not a failure. That's not a problem. That's not something that we should feel embarrassed about, um, or unsure of, like we should be able to realize like you're saying. And the beauty of that pruning thing is that the trees submit to the seasons, but we don't, we have to be drug into each season and we are mm -hmm. kicking and screaming. So I love hearing that like, no, we have to be intentional about this. So what did that, as you've talked about your, your pruning experience, when you started to rest and you started to carve that out and see what that was like, what did you learn about yourself and your identity in Christ? What just like stuck out? Was there anything that maybe you thought like, whoa, I just, I don't know why I never got that until now, but now that I stopped and breathed, it came out. What happened was I realized that, and this is going to sound kind of ridiculous and silly, but true, truthfully, I had not internalized this in my soul. I realized that I am loved by God, that we are, all of us, loved by God, not for what we do, but simply for who we are. And I know that we've heard this said before, and I've read it, and I've said it to myself, but I didn't really internalize it. I didn't live it until I allowed him to strip away all of the extraneous stuff until I was just laid out bare and vulnerable and exposed. And then I realized because I had nothing, I didn't have any of that extra stuff by which I had defined myself, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was only then that I realized, oh, I am loved. I am beloved. Mm. And I had this revelation, which kind of cracked me up because, so when I, in the past, when I had read the gospel of John, <laughs> I'm going to admit, he <laughs> kind of bugged me a little because he refers to himself <laughs> as the disciple. <laughs> yeah, the disciple that was loved by God. And I was just like, who does that? That's kind of obnoxious, right? Yeah. I, I just thought he was kind of like self-involved or self-centered and all of a sudden I realized the reason why John refers to himself as the disciple whom God loved or whom Jesus loved was because that was his primary identity. That was how he saw himself, his mm. primary identity. He defined himself solely by the fact that he was loved by God. So it wasn't that he was being obnoxious or self-involved, but just he just lived it. He knew it in the very essence of his soul that he was loved by God. And that was his identity, not what he achieved, not everything he checked off on his to-do list, not, you know, not all the things, just that it was such a revelation for me. And if anyone had all the things, it was John. So that's, what's even more amazing about it is like, if we could not measure up on paper to John, but like you're saying, that was not what he was boasting about, which is so, I love yeah. that. That's so neat. And, and I think it's important too, to, to make, like we've talked about that this is a personal journey and experience. So like you said, you can read it and we have all read that. And we've said like, no, we know that, but there's such a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so important. I can, I have told my kids a million times over, don't jump off the couch. It's going to hurt. But as soon as they experience it and they're hurt, 
well, then, you know, they know for themselves, but it's, it's true because that journey, and, and that's what I love about your story of taking the even five minutes out. That's kind of what I imagine we all need to do to be able to come to that place of what you're saying of like, I finally felt and believed in my soul that I was loved by God mm-hmm. because you took the time to be like, let me show me God, let me experience this. Let it not be something that I just read about, but let me feel it. And that takes a sort of intentionality to it as well, which is important. And what you're, you know, what you're basically talking about in your story. Yeah. And I think that's important. And I'm glad you brought it back to that intentional rest, those, um, those minutes that we intentionally take to be quiet, to be still, to hear the, uh, the still small voice, right? I don't think I could have had the realization I did about God's love and about my identity if I hadn't first quieted myself in order to begin to hear that truth. Mm. Um, and I also want to say, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm a hundred percent now and I figured it all out. So I'm great. I'm good to go. I mean, it's, it's always, at least for me, but I think for everybody, a two steps forward or a two steps back, one step forward or two steps forward, one step back kind of process. You know, it's, I don't think we ever sort of reach the end of the journey until of course we are reunited, um, with God in heaven. Um, so it's an imperfect journey. There is always still mm-hmm. a transformative work um, that can that can happen and that can be done. Yeah. Well, and, and even thinking about the, the people in the Bible or like the miracles. I was just talking with someone on a podcast earlier this week that, um, that said like, well, what happens after the miracle? And I was thinking, oh, isn't that so true? Like we see like when the friends lower him down on the mat and he gets healed, but then it's done. What do we, what happens next? What happens to him when he has to go out into the world and he doesn't know how to do anything? Cause he's been laying on his mat forever. And now he's expected mm-hmm. to be a member of society and to do things like everyone else. And, and like the miracle happened. Right. And so you're saying like, I got it. I had that revelation. Now I know that. And I believe that, but I still have to live life. And, mm-hmm. and that there's so much after the miracle that happens that we don't always get to read about per se, or, I mean, in some places we do, cause Paul talks about his shipwrecks, <laughs> you know, and everything is being stoning and having to get thrown out a window and ropes, you know, and, and all sorts of stuff that came after his revelation on the road to Damascus. So it's, it's neat to just remember that real life still happens. We still live in a broken fallen world. So we're going to have days that feel like we're in a battle because we are. Yeah. Yeah, and what I love about the pruning metaphor is that it works for this part of the journey too, because often what happens, and I know this just from my own experience of pruning trees and shrubs in my own yard, is the branches that you don't want, that you pruned away, some of them grow back, Mm. and you have to prune them again and again. I have this one shrub in my backyard. It makes me crazy because every spring, what I thought I had gotten rid of the year before seems like it's back. Sometimes it even seems like it's back like more vibrant than ever, you know, which makes me crazy. But, and the, the solution, the cure for that from a gardening perspective is reprune, reprune, <laughs> cut the branches, and ul- eventually, ultimately, there will come a time when those branches that you don't want will stop growing. They will stop regrowing, but it takes perseverance, patience, um, 
spirit, you know, spiritual disciplines, this is where spiritual disciplines come into play. These are sort of the, the techniques, the repruning techniques, metaphorically speaking, that we can use in our spiritual lives to help keep those branches that we don't want to keep regrowing, to help keep them at bay. Yeah, and I, I think that's important that you say the spiritual disciplines. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that and how important those are. Because I think in our society, especially, those are getting lost. And, mm. and like you said, that, that is an important part, not because we have to be legalistic about anything, but because like you're saying, it's the discipline of teaching ourselves how we're supposed to walk. So can you elaborate just a little bit more on maybe what that's like? Yeah, well, for me, and it's not a conventional spiritual discipline, but the practice of daily intentional silence and solitude is a spiritual discipline. And so when I stray from that practice, and I have strayed, I can see where I tend to fall back into my own bad habits. The, the branches that I prune start to regrow. So I tend to fall back into my emphasis on my to-do list and, you know, productivity and striving and hustle. And so coming back to daily intentional silence and stillness is one spiritual discipline that helps kind of keep those branches from regrowing. Um, spending time in reflectively in God's word, of course, is another one because just, you know, reminding yourself of God's truth. We the verses might be familiar. We may have read the stories a number of times, and yet it still helps to, to cycle back, to return to those familiar stories. And I mean, more times than not, God will reveal some, uh, something new, you know, some new aspect. And sometimes even in the most familiar verses, um, I, and I'm sure you've had that experience too. So, you know, that's a spiritual discipline that will help uh, you know, keep some of those bad habits, um, from springing back into, into action again. Mm, that's good. Um, so kind of moving forward in your story now, what role did community play in this journey for you? Did you feel like that was a, a big part of it? Something that we need to focus on as we're trying to take this journey? What did that look like? Yeah. So, Henry Nowen, who was a Catholic theologian and teacher, he's passed on now, but he says something interesting, and I don't have this quote exactly right, but he says, first you turn inward and you do the deep personal spiritual work, the, the pruning work, and then that naturally, as you engage in that process, the natural result of that is that you begin to turn outward. Um, because I think what you want is, and, and this is how I've experienced, like when you experience this truth about God, you want to share it with other people. And so that draws you into, uh, into, com into community. Um, Henry Nowen also said that one of the beautiful things about community is that it reflects God's presence back to you when you can't see God in the moment for yourself. And I love that because it's so true. You know, we don't, we're not always aware of God's presence um, for lots of different reasons. We're in 
uh, a difficult place, we're suffering, we're grieving, um, you know, we're distracted, we have a lot going on, and yet we may feel, and we feel, we might feel distant from God. We might feel like, gosh, where is God? Why is he not here with me in this? And so many times our community can, as Nowen said, reflect um, God's presence back to us. And help they, our community helps us see God in, in the minutia of our daily lives. Mm. Oh, and how, oh, how just gracious is that? Because when we're all, you know, we know, and that's another thing we know, we're all made in the image of God. So when we look at the people around us, we, like you said, we should be able to learn and be able to know God better by the relationships that we have. An interesting thing that I was told when I started going through the process of healing and kind of finding my gospel identity, my mentor said, if God was sitting right next to me and I asked him to introduce you to me, what would he say? And mm -hmm. I could not well, I didn't know. And mm -hmm. I, and I said, and he said, well, try, like, how would he would say, let me introduce you to generally. And what would he say? And I started being like, well, I'm a wife and I'm a mom. And he was like, no, those are the things that you do. God's not looking at that. What would, how would God introduce you? And it took me, and I'm ashamed to say like four weeks to be able to come up with an answer to that because I really didn't know. And, and I yeah. really thought like, huh, okay. But then once I did, and I was able to come to a place where I feel like these are the things that God would introduce me as. And then kind of like you said earlier with John, it almost made me feel cocky because suddenly, <laughs> suddenly I was like, well, if God would introduce me, I would be kind of amazing. Right. <laughs> like, I love it. I mean, it sounds like, but then I started to see, like, I had to ask myself the question with my husband, if God introduced Joey to me, what would he say? What are the things? And then I started to realize that the things that probably annoy me about him are probably the things that God would be like, this is so unique to him. Look how amazing this is. But yeah. I wouldn't have, I don't think of that because I can only see myself. But I'm, when I'm trying to really see, like, what is it that I can learn about God in you? that changes everything. It changes the way I look at my kids and the way I look at Joey. And like you've said earlier, this is not something I do all the time. I wish it was because there are so many yeah. times when I think like, oh, I'm annoyed. And if I would step back, this would change it. And sometimes I do. But overall, I have to remind myself that. But it's such yeah. an, an interesting perspective of like, no, God, I'm going to let you tell me who this person is. I'm going to let you introduce them. And then the way that we kind of live in community changes, right? Because then like mm -hmm. you just said, they have something to teach us. Now it's like they're reflecting God's glory and God's image and all the beauty that he has back to us. So I think that's mm -hmm. such a connection and community. Mm, I, lo I love that so much. And I'm going to have to sit with that question of how, how God would introduce me because I, I love it. Um, it's great. But it also, it reminded me of a story that I tell in the book about this relationship that my family and I um, ended up, um, this friendship we, we ended up pursuing. And it was with a, a family, a refugee family, who arrived in Nebraska from Iraq. And what's beautiful about this relationship and about this process of moving toward community is that I think once you understand, once you can see, right, how God would introduce you to someone else, you can begin to see God in every 
everybody in every person and in the people that you might least expect to find it. And so from my perspective, I didn't ever anticipate that we would become friends and be in relationship with people who don't speak our language, are not from the same country, practice a different religion, um, eat different food. I mean, the differences are crazy, but yet we have that common humanity and love um, that grounds us, brings us together. Um, and so I think that that's sort of the, the beauty and the gift of recognizing not only God in you and yourself, but then also as a result of that, recognizing God in everybody. And I don't know, it sort of emboldens you, I think, to step out of your comfort zone and out of your familiar spaces and, and, and your familiar neighborhoods and, and into, um, into new community that you didn't, that you might not have um, seen yourself engaging with in the past. That's, at least that's what yeah. happened to me and to my family, which I kind of dragged my family along with my, <laughs> along <too>. with me. <laughs> it's been good. It's been good. So yeah, it's just, it's been such a beautiful and unexpected experience and gift in this whole process. And how cool is that? Because like you said, even being from a different religion, a lot of times we set up those boundaries, right? And those barriers and those mm -hmm. walls of thinking like, oh, that's not a place that I can go. But God's like, but they're still mine, whether mm -hmm. they, you know, however they believe or whatever they know, they're still mine. They still were made in my image. Mm -hmm. So it's so neat. And that's beautiful. And I loved that story. And that's such, I can't even imagine the kind of trials that also came along with that story that you shared and, and try, I mean, that's, that's gotta be a very difficult thing to kind of walk through on both sides. I can't imagine mm -hmm. them having to come to a place that they don't know everything is brand new and no mm -hmm. one speaks their language as well. And, you know, but for you also, what were, what was that like? How hard was that? It's almost probably a pruning of itself in that relationship. Oh, totally. And I, I, I have to be totally honest with you. You know, I, I dipped my toes into this experience very tentatively. And when we met with the uh, social worker at Lutheran Family Services who was going to connect us with this family, um, I, I entered into this experience sort of thinking, well, we're going to help this family just set up their apartment and get them what they need for when they arrive to the United States. Um, and then our, our social worker asked us, so, you know, would you be willing to kind of come alongside um, this family if they need um, help enrolling their kids in school or going to the doctors? Because, you know, there's going to be a language barrier and, you know, they, they need people to help them navigate mm -hmm. this incredibly difficult process of, you know, finding this new life for themselves. And I was just like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, that is way outside my comfort zone. I just want to set up the apartment and then <laughs> fade into the background. And mm -hmm. but I said, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess we could do that. And I mean, that was the first step. But I, you know, I'm the first to admit, I I felt awkward. I felt uncomfortable. It was 
it was just an uncomfortable experience. It was way out of my comfort zone. Um, and for them too, I mean, gosh, everything, everything yeah. was new for them. These are people who had suffered through a genocide, seen horrible, horrible things happen, had to leave family members, leave everything. They arrived with six suitcases, you know, for the rest of their lives. That's all they will, were ever able to take from their homeland. And yeah, just absolutely devastating circumstances. So everything that was hard for me was crazy compared to what was hard for them and is still hard. It's been, it's been two years since they arrived here and they're doing great. They're doing absolutely wonderful. And we, we still have this really wonderful relationship with them, but it was hard and it is still hard in some ways. And that's just, I don't know, it, it's grown me in, in ways that I have not expected. Mm. And it's kind of, it's kind of funny to just think like, I think a lot of times when we want to help someone, anyone, we kind of think of it like you're saying like, okay, here's the thing we can do. And God's like, well, no, it's not about the issue. It's about the heart. So let's go that way. Um, mm -hmm. And even just realizing too, like, I mean, honestly, it's the little things. It's, it's things like, I love when I, when people ask me, well, I want to do something in ministry. And I'm like, well, where are you at right now? Are you loving the people around you? Well, start there, you know, like, cause it can mm -hmm. be something as simple as having coffee with someone who's brokenhearted, or it can be something as easy as giving someone a ride when they don't have a car, like those mm -hmm. little things when you're like, you're doing life with them. Mm -hmm. It changes. So, and that's what I hear. And when I, when I heard your story, I was thinking that's what it, you stepped into life with them, which is mm -hmm. the real heart and the messy work. Right. Cause like you're saying, it introduces things in ourselves that maybe we don't want to see, but it also mm -hmm. shows areas where we can grow and where we can be like, no, this is our chance. This is a moment opportunity that we're invited into someone else's life. And that is an mm -hmm. honor when you think about it. So to kind of, mm -hmm. kind of bring that into perspective, that's really neat and such a neat story. I, I, I love that you guys are still friends and that you guys still talk. Cause that's, it's funny to think that at the beginning it was, no, I'm going to set up their apartment and I'm going to be done. And then two years later, it's like, no, these people are in my life. Oh yeah. We have dinner with them. They have dinner with us. We do things with their kids. We took their kids ice skating a few weeks ago. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And what God has shown me is that, um, I mean, in a way, it's been a little bit of a hard, humbling, that's a good word for it, a humbling lesson, because I think I went into this experience thinking, I'm going to I'm gonna be the helper. I'm going to be sort of the savior here. I'm going to be the person who swoops in and makes everything better. And what God has shown me is that these friends have gifted us in so many ways that we didn't expect with their incredible generosity, their hospitality, their love, um, their graciousness. And here we, here I was thinking, I'm, I'm going to be the helper. I'm going to be the savior. And really what they have given us is just so much more really than what we have given them. And it's just been, it's been humbling. It really, it has, you know, because God has said, you're not the only one with something to give, you know, these people who you think don't have anything, have plenty to give you and plenty to teach you. Mm, that's so neat. So if mm -hmm. we can remember, if we could only remember that when we meet everybody that we come in contact with. <laughs> I know, I know, because it's not easy. And we, you know, we carry our preconceived notions in and our expectations and our stereotypes and all the things. And yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, God is, 
he is gentle, but he is firm too. And, um, and, and he shows us, I think, and has shown me what some of those preconceived notions were and what my role was or what I thought it was and what I thought their role was. And he sort of flipped everything on its head as mm -hmm. God typically is want to do, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <said> a lot. <laughs> yes. So as we kind of um, wrap up a little bit, would you mind telling me what was the process of kind of putting this, because this seems like such a personal story and a personal journey. What was kind of the process of putting this out into the world? And, and did you feel vulnerable? How have you felt since it's been out there now? It is a vulnerable story. Um, you know, I, I've been writing for a while and, and I'm a blogger, so I am a, at least a little bit used to writing personal narrative and, and telling a personal story. Um, but this, this ha has been, it's been a little trickier. I was at a reading in, in here in Lincoln, my hometown here, <clears throat> and somebody asked me, you know, has it been hard? And I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of, I feel exposed. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wrote a book about pruning and being exposed and now I feel exposed. So mm -hmm. it has been, it has been a little challenging, but I'm so um, convinced of the message and the benefits and gifts in this transformative process, as hard as it is, that it's worth it. It's been, I think it's been, and will continue to be worth it. It was a hard book to write. It really was. I, I, I don't know, about halfway through, I was convinced that it was just terrible. Um, I think because it was so hard to write, to be that uh, vulnerable. But once I got some space for it, uh, I was able to, I think, better appreciate it. So yeah, it's, well, it's we're, been glad, we're glad that you wrote it. It's, it's something that I really, I strongly believe will change people when they get a chance to read it. What's one thing that you hope that people take away from your book? If you could say one thing, what's the one thing that you're hoping they take away? I hope that people, readers will come to understand their primary identity as first and foremost loved by God. And that they're able to sort of see how, how they, all the ways and things that they have used to identify themselves and how once they strip that away, their primary identity is absolutely 100% wholly loved by God. Mm, just as they are. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I mm -hmm. love that. Well, one question that I always love to ask at the end of every episode what are what books are you reading right now? Okay, oh, I always have several books going at once. Um, I'm trying to remember what what's what I'm reading right now. Well, I'm okay. So I'm listening to uh, the audiobook "Better Than Before" by Gretchen Rubin. It's been out for a while. I don't. Are you familiar with Gretchen mm -hmm. Rubin? No. She she writes about habits, habit formation, how to form good habits, um, how to let go of or replace bad habits. It's, it's a great book actually to read toward the beginning of the year when you're sort of looking at the year ahead, 
things about yourself that you might want to change your routines, your rhythms, whatnot. So I, I highly recommend that. It's not, it's not a spiritual book. It's just a, a regular book. Um, let's see, what else am I reading? Um, I just started a book by Mary Pfeiffer. She's, she actually lives here in Lincoln, which is a very well-known author and it's called Women Rowing North. And it's about, um, those of us, I'm a little bit older than you are, who are entering our, or firmly smack in the middle of our middle age and, and beyond. So how to navigate um, middle age, the aging process um, from a woman's perspective. So it's really interesting. Mm, all right. I'm going to have to check them both out. I love yeah. hearing the habit forming one too. I'm going to have to check that one out. Um, yeah, she's great. She's great. She's written a ton of books. The Happiness Project, you might be familiar oh, with that. that. Yeah. yeah. That was like super New York Times bestseller about 10 years ago. And that's a great book in and of itself too. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's more stuff to add to our list. I'll put the, yeah. um, the links to those <laughs> in the show notes. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here, how do people learn more about you or find your book? Where, where would they go for that? Well, the book is um, on Amazon, Barnes Noble. It could be, if you have a local Barnes and Noble store, it could be uh, available in your store as well. So that's good. Um, I am at michelderussia.com. It's my website. Okay. And on Instagram, it's my favorite social media venue and it's at michelderussia. So I would love to connect with some of your listeners there. Yes. I, and I have followed you on Instagram and I love reading that. I think my favorite thing about Instagram is it's like a quick little snippet I can read while I'm waiting to pick up my kid or something like that. And it still is so life-giving when you follow the right people. So I really, I like following you as well. That's, I encourage oh, them thank to you. Of thank course. You. Thank you so much for making the time to come on and for sharing so much wisdom with us. I've really enjoyed our time. I have enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun and just good to have a conversation with a new friend. So appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want quotes from each episode or want to find and reach out to the awesome people interviewed, please find us on Instagram under at Tales of Moxie and follow us for all the details and for info on who will be on the show in the weeks to come. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at talesofmoxie@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.